Welcome to Homeopathy Lee. My name is Mette Mitchell and I am a homeopath. Uh, and I have this podcast because I like to talk about homeopathy to anybody who will listen. Today I am feeling inspired to talk about again a little bit more about the history of homeopathy. And that is because <laughs> I think you can say as a result of the time that we are living in. It's just reached a point where you have to go, is it really fair the way that we are talking about homeopathy? Is it about time that we rise up and we start telling the truth about homeopathy and we start talking more about the history behind this division that we have in medicine, what happened, why was homeopathy demonized in the way that it is. There is an interesting history there to know about and maybe even more so now because it's the same patterns basically that we are experiencing now with suppressing of certain cures in order to be able to sell pharmaceutical products. This is actually the very short story about why homeopathy is so suppressed. It's also a healthy way, <laughs> I think, for me to express uh, my anger at the, the people, my friends, or my some of them, I have to say, previous friends on Facebook that just seems to lap up the narrative without asking any questions just because they are predisposed or they have been brainwashed. I don't know what it is that is going on, but why is it that we have to be so discriminating against other types of medicine? And why is it that we are discriminating so hard against homeopathy? I do not understand it. If you really feel like you are living through a pandemic right now, wouldn't you be interested in doing everything within your power to stay healthy and to have good medicine at your hand? It frankly slowly seems a little bit illogical to uh, be condemning any other type of medicine than these damn vaccines that everybody seems to be so eagerly and keenly pushing into people's arms. And let's just remind ourselves also, while the um, official opinions about the vaccines and, and, and all the other interventions that we see in this supposed pandemic, they are being changed all the time. And to this morning, for instance, Sweden and Denmark have pulled the Moderna vaccine uh, from being used on people under 18 years of age. No explanation has followed from the Danish government, but... <laughs> it was like this, the big leader uh, has made the announcement that the Moderna vaccine is not being used for children, for people under the age of 18 anymore. No explanation. Nothing has been added. What should you do if you are under 18 and you already got the Moderna vaccine, for instance? These are some of the questions that I expect people they are sitting with. And at the same time, you know, my own practice room, it's resembling more and more uh, war medicine, and that's what I'm comparing it to. 
Some of you may know that I'm writing a book right now about World War II, where I'm writing about my grandfather's experience in the resistance during World War II in Norway. And one of the people that he got really close to uh, during that time where he was in a, a guerrilla cell up in the mountains uh, uh, near Bergen in Norway uh, in, a, in a group called Björn Vist, uh, he grew close to, to the doctor that was looking after them there. And when actually, his name is Dr. Eilertsen. And, and when Dr. Eilertsen, he ended up in the same cell as my grandfather, he was not fully trained as a doctor. He quit his studies to uh, make his way to England where he could get specific education in, in uh, war medicine. So first of all, to learn to treat the ailments that people they present during war and of course in particular for uh, people who has been in combat. And then of course also because he had to learn to practice uh, under circumstances uh, that are not the same as when you are in a sterile hospital environment. But sometimes I feel like in the moment that what I'm, what I'm doing in my clinic room is war medicine because I see the people that are coming with injuries from the vaccines. Um, I don't like talking about them as directly because of patient confidentiality so I'm not gonna tell you I saw somebody that had this or I saw somebody that had that but I can definitely tell you that there's some weird things happening to the blood uh, I'm going to have to re-educate myself completely on on blood and maybe also because that is just an area that I don't know maybe we're not paying enough attention to it in homeopathy because you know we don't do uh, blood samples, we don't do tests like this. We we sometimes look at the blood and and the color of the blood, and there are different other things we can can look at with the blood. And I'm definitely gonna learn everything we know about blood and that we how we analyze blood and what we do with these results in within homeopathy. That's something I have decided to do as a result of the side effects that I'm seeing in my practice. But then. I also see people with much worse conditions than I normally would simply because people are scared to go to see their doctor or they are scared to go to hospital because they are scared that they may have a positive COVID test and how is that going to affect myself, my job, the people around me uh, or they are scared of uh, being vaccinated against their will while they are there. <clears throat> so. The homeopathic practice for me has changed in that sense. I'm up for it. I'm willing to learn. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help. But I also just got to think, you know, is this where we have to end up before we start considering homeopathy? Do I need to come into your room with a weird sensation in my body that may be a sign of there's something going on with my blood because I feel something I never felt before and I feel it in my whole body and I know that it came after I got vaccinated is that what it's gonna take for for anyone to use homeopathy or is it that I have a condition that is so rough and that is so complicated and that is so big uh, and scary uh, but not 
scarier for me than going to the hospital. So now I'm going to have to reach out and see what I can find of other practitioners that may be able to help me. Is this how far, is this far out that we have to go to discover homeopathy? Okay, so be it. But then let's just also just understand that the reason why people are coming to homeopathy is because the medicine that they have been served up until this point has not served them well. They are not coming because they're crazy or because they are uneducated or because they don't trust medicine. Most people that come to the homeopathic practice, they actually did trust medicine and they did take their medication and they did take their vaccinations and they did go through the procedures and yet still they're not feeling better. So when people, they come to homeopathy, in my experience, very often it is simply because medicine or mainstream medicine uh, has failed. It's out that maybe medicine has always known that they were failing. They have always known that their products was um, inferior compared to homeopathy that was thriving at the time when, for instance, the American Medical Association was founded. There was a realization that we have to suppress the knowledge about homeopathy very, very hard because otherwise they are going to take our business. So let's get into it. Let me take you through this uh, great article by Dana Ullman, who is one of those heroes um, that one of the first homeopaths that I learned about and that I started looking up to. He's written some great articles, first of all. Uh, he's very engaged in research as well. He's written some great books and he's really working extremely extraordinarily hard to make the world understand the brilliance of homeopathy. I also have to say that I had a personal encounter with him and he turned out to be a bit of an asshole, actually. Um, I, I reached out to him when I was still a, a homeopathy student and, and he asked, are you doing any research? And I said, well, you know, I do study for a bachelor's degree of science in homeopathy, so we are going to do a research proposal at the end of these studies. And he was like, I have no respect for students or homeopaths who are not doing any research. And he was just like, you know, quite angry. And let's just, maybe I just got him on a, on a bad day. I don't know. But uh, it put me off him for a little bit. But you know what? We have to uh, get over things like this, little squabbles by this, this and just simply take a look at the, the great qualities that every man and every woman on this planet has. And today I'm definitely celebrating Dana Earl, Dana Ullman and many of the great articles and all of the great work that he has been doing for and is doing for homeopathy. But today we're going to so zoom in on, on one article about homeopathy and this whole history with the American Medical Association and homeopathy and what all happened there. And who knows, maybe there's like an echo in this that we can see and hear today uh, and maybe this is an echo that is going to go 
to make you go hmm you know maybe there's something to this maybe i should look into it why don't i just try it out <laughs> you know uh, that's the great thing about homeopathy it's not toxic forget everything you know about medicine that is toxic and it can kill you and you have to be a very advanced university student to be able to uh, administer it no you can just get started and you will very soon see extremely amazing results so let me dig this article out it's called it's called a condensed history of homeopathy and it can be found on the website homeopathic.com history of homeopathy uh, is definitely one that deserves to have a movie made about it because there is a lot of drama uh, in this and there's a lot of extremely interesting things that happens uh, things that we can relate to today and maybe more so now than ever before uh, there's 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 a lot of lot of good stuff here um that makes for a very good story uh, homeopathy was very popular you know like extremely popular in uh, the usa and europe in the 1800s uh, and for instance uh, it was very much used by um, european royalty and of course we also know still that the uh, queen of england and uh, um, prince charles are advocates of, of uh, homeopathy and so much so to the extent where they have made uh, the homeopathic pharmacy in london ainsworth that they got the royal warrant uh, that proves that they are supplying homeopathic remedy to the royal household and when the queen mother was also alive they also had her warrant so at one point they actually had three royal warrant warrants um, it was homeopathy was the, the the medicine of the rich of the educated uh, of the sophisticated class um, and it's it's that's where it all started and then from there of course it was gaining more and more popularity because it was very fashionable um but the but the conflict between homeopathy and orthodox medicine was protracted and better we know who won this first round of this conflict says dana allman um and now we can just wait and see if homeopathy is going to take over and become more popular again after this long um, deprived many deprived years many homeopathy homeopathy deprived years that we have been going through ever since homeopathy was discovered by Samuel Hahnemann he lived from in 17 from 1755 he was born and he died in 1843 he was a German physician he made the word he came up with the term homeopathy and it's put together from um, uh, homeos which means similar in greek and pathos which of course means suffering so similar suffering is actually the term of homeopathy it's not that homeopathy uh, or the principles of homeopathy has not been used before hahnemann he made this word for it um it has been uh, described by hippocrates and uh, other 
very old and ancient cultures where, where we look at uh, similar suffering, where we look at like cures like and that system that we have behind homeopathy. It's, it's been used by Mayas, the Chinese, the Greeks, Native American Indians, Asian Indians. And so this has been knowledge that has existed for many years, but it's only when Hanuman came along that we coined the term, or he coined the term homeopathy. Hanuman, he first uh, discovered uh, homeopathy when, you know, so he was a physician, he was a doctor. Uh, but he also spoke many languages, and actually he did not feel uh, fulfilled in in uh, being a doctor. So so he began to work with translating stuff instead, and he was uh, uh, translating a book uh, by William Cullen, uh, and he was one of the very leading physicians at the time. And at one point in the book, Cullen. Uh, ascribed the usefulness of Peruvian bark in treating malaria due to its bitter and astringent properties. So, this was of course part of the belief that they had at the time about medicine, that for instance the taste uh, would be an indication of what it could treat. Um, there were some principles that were kind of like thrown around and used to prove this and that, but maybe they didn't hold uh, as well as one could wish for. Uh, and, and Hahnemann wrote a bold footnote in his translation disputing Collins' explanation. I'm reading from Dana's article now. Hahnemann asserted that the efficacy of Peruvian bark must be for other, uh, must be for other factor, since he noted that there were other substances and mixtures of substances decidedly more bitter and more astringent that, than Peruvian bark that were not effective in treating malaria. So he was like, so you cannot say that because it's bitter, then it can treat malaria. It must be something else. So Hahnemann decided to take his own repeated doses of this herb. So he actually took the Peruvian bark until his body responded to its toxic dose with fever, chills, and other symptoms similar to malaria. Hahnemann concluded that the reason this herb was beneficial was because it had caused symptoms similar of those of the disease it was treating. So that's how Hahnemann, he came by homeopathy and how he got more interested in this because of course what happened after is that he started taking many different substances, recording what these substances did to him and then he went on with the assumption that if a substance could create symptoms in, in him when he took it in a toxic dose then the substance should be able to treat the same symptoms. It doesn't sound too far-fetched frankly when we are talking about it like this but that's of course what Hahnemann he went on to do and he went on to um, explore homeopathy, describe homeopathy, write books about homeopathy, and teach homeopathy. And that's how homeopathy started. So let's just remind ourselves, Hahnemann, he was born in um, uh, 17... 
what did I say, 55. Uh, so, so, so that's where we are in the history. And it was in 1789 that Hahnemann, he worked on this translation uh, of the book by William Cullen. Hahnemann, of course, went on to uh, use his own medicine, uh, to use homeopathy. Uh, and this is also, <laughs> you know, even with Hahnemann, that is when the conflict started with the pharmacies, which of course today is the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, but he was disliked uh, by the pharmacies because he used so little medicine. <laughs> he always only gave one, one medicine at the time. And the instructions that he gave to the preparation of the medicine was very complicated. Homeopathy goes through a very vigorous uh, process, rig rigorous process, rigorous and vigorous process um, of, of, you know, we have a very special process where, where the homeopathic remedies are being manufactured. And of course, all our remedies are still to this day made by pharmacists. So in that way, you are, you know that it doesn't matter what homeopathic pharmacy you go to or where you go to buy a homeopathic remedy, it will always be exactly the same. But of course, the pharmacies, they were not too impressed by Hahnemann because he did not um, um, spend enough money <laughs> in their shops, frankly. Uh, and they also got so annoyed with him and this whole process of, of making the remedies that they started um, slagging off and they didn't do a proper job. And of course, Hahnemann, he felt that in uh, uh, the medicines that he dispensed to his patients. So he decided to start making his own medicine, which was against the law in Germany at the time. So he got arrested in 1820 um, and he was uh, uh, found guilty of his crime of manufacturing his own uh, medicines and, and he was made to move. So he moved. In spite of these criminal charges and in spite of him being found guilty, then homeopathy <clears throat> just continued to grow. And again, uh, you have to also say that one of the reasons why homeopathy was allowed to grow at the time was because allopathic medicine, orthodox medicine, was ineffective and sometimes even dangerous. Um, the medicine, orthodox medicine, that was uh, um, practiced in the 17th and 1800s, <clears throat> it's understood today that that medicine did not benefit the patients. There were more patients dying from the treatment than, than that was healed. And one of the things, of course, that was used at the time was bloodletting. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so you can go in and you can uh, uh, take some blood out of a patient or, or, or let it seep with leeches or simply by tapping the blood. And the patient will feel um, sedated and tired and be calm and they won't scream in pain anymore, maybe just because they don't have the, the energy. But of course, that was uh, um, uh, part of... That, that, that was medicine at the time. It was a... a a brutal affair actually and of course it was also the reason why Hahnemann he decided not to be a phys physician after all even under these circumstances it 
Hahnemann, he uh, trained people, homeopathy was spreading, first of all, of course, in Europe. But then in 1825, a Dutch homeopath with the name of Hans Graham, Hans Gram is how I would expect it to be pronounced, he immigrated to the US. And from there, homeopathy just started spreading like a wildfire across the US. And actually, what we have to keep in mind as an absolute historical fact, that is, that at one point, there were more homeopathic hospitals in the US than there were orthodox hospitals. But at the time, there was also an understanding that there was room for both modalities. There were space for, for uh, uh, both ways of, of practicing. And then the appropriate method was chosen accordingly to the patient. Um, that is a good approach instead of trying to squeeze all patients into the same model. And that's one of the core things that I was taught in the college that I studied, where I studied. <clears throat> Let's learn as many different ways of using homeopathy so that we can uh, help the patients uh, in the right way instead of just studying one model of homeopathy, which would then be the classical model, and then try and squeeze every patient into that. Um, but that was in 1825. Um, and after gaining so much popularity, then in 1844, uh, homeopaths decided to create their own national medical society, and they created American Institute of Homeopathy. And I kid you not, this is actually the first medical association that was established in the U.S., got organized didn't make uh, orthodox doctors like homeopathy more and and the critique points that there were on the homeopath from the orthodox physicians uh, were that the homeopath don't like conventional drugs it's the same then as it is today and we're also still using the same uh, arguments so as homeopaths, we disagree with using medicine that is simply suppressing the symptoms. So, very easy to explain it like this. You go to your doctor because you have a pain in your foot and your doctor gives you some pain medication and forgets to ask you to take the stone out of your shoe. You know, another way of, of describing it is you... you uh, have uh, something is blinking, something is lighting up in the dashboard of your car, and just imagine that you just took your car to the garage and you say, "Look at this light flashing in the dashboard. It's unbearable. I can't handle it. It really distracts my driving." And then they just simply unscrew the bulb <laughs> so that the light won't flash anymore. This is what homeopaths are opposed to. We are looking for the root cause. We are looking for where does these symptoms come from? What is the dysfunction that is happening in your body that is making this light flash up, that is creating this pain, that is creating this rash, uh, that is giving you the headache, that is making your stomach upset? 
why does this happen to you? And of course, because we want to address the root cause, because when we address the root cause, then we get real healing. Then we are not just going on to a regime of having to take medication endlessly uh, to keep the symptoms at bay and to keep our existence bearable. And then, of course, you can add to that, that a lot of these medications that you get from orthodox medicine on top of everything, on top of not bringing you a real cure, it's actually also toxic. And that's another thing that homeopaths then and now is having some problems with. Um, and one of the problems, of course, that it causes for homeopaths is that when we get people that come into our practice, then as now, we have to start by treating them for the side effects that they have experienced from the medicine. And it actually, frankly, makes it more difficult for, for homeopaths to find out what does it take to get a real healing happening here. So these are the two things that homeopaths then and also now have to say about allopathic medicine. You know, not saying it doesn't have its place. You know, my daughter, she had uh, antibiotics and lots of it when she had meningitis. And, and, and that was completely in its place that, that, that she got that because we know that this will actually uh, temper uh, uh, this, this disease uh, so that we survive it. You know, great. That's awesome that we have that. But there may be other situations <laughs> where uh, other uh, more holistic approaches to healing are more in its appropriate and that's of course when we mainly when we talk about chronic ailments um, then it becomes quite obvious that it, it makes more sense to look for the root cause instead of simply just trying to suppress the symptoms that are occurring because in our knowledge with homeopathy the way that we work with the body the way that we work with healing what happens when we suppress a symptom? <laughs> it's not that the symptom goes away. It just gets pressed deeper into the system. Um, so that we just get a more serious ailment uh, to replace uh, the, the, the maybe not so serious ailment that has just been suppressed. So, for instance, uh, you know, there is like a... a really good way of, of understanding this and this is an example that I use very often where we say the skin and the intestinal system and the lungs is completely connected and that's of course not just something that homeopathy states and says this is something that is understood in many many ancient medicines and why is it that it's so easy to understand the connection between these free systems so the skin and the intestines and the lungs well it is because they are actually directly connected in the same fabric if you will you know if we were to pull it out from the body we would see that there is no disconnect between the skin the lungs and the intestinal system everything is completely um, connected in a closed circuit you can the skin goes into your mouth, goes down um, to your stomach, goes down into the intestines. There is no separation. There is no separation. 
And of course, also the lungs are completely connected in the same system and in the same fabric. Lungs are delicate and when you have some ailment on your lungs, it can be life-threatening. Of course, it's not uh, 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 life-threatening to have something on the skin. Um, uh, well, I, you know, you should never say never, but no, you're, 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 more, you're more likely to have something life-threatening on your lungs than you are on your skin. So many of the skin problems that we see, they actually come from digestive issues. So in particular, you know, um, constipation can be a good reason for why you see a child starting to develop eczema. And then, of course, we, if you go to your doctor and, and you get some steroid creams and you, and you put that on the skin, you know, this, the, the, the skin is just trying to help uh, getting rid of stuff uh, that, that the intestinal, that, that your digestive system is not able to. So it's kind of like a desperate try from the body just to try and help the situation and to move the, this whatever it is that has to be removed from the body and make sure that it gets removed in a safe way. And a safe way to eliminate is through the skin. Um, and then, of course, um, if we suppress the skin uh, in expressing these symptoms, it's not like the need to get rid of stuff is going away. We're just removing the skin's ability to do it. So now it has to go deeper. And where does it go? It goes to the lungs. And congratulations, now you have a disease in a vital organ and something that can potentially be life-threatening. We're not impressed in homeopathy when we see these types of things. We're not impressed by this uh, specialist uh, society that you have amongst orthodox medicine. I mean, it's great to have specialists, but when you have a, a dermatologist that do not understand actually the effect on the digestive system and the intestines they have on the skin, then what are they going to do? They just take a microscope and look at the skin and they can tell you all the different names of all the different things that happen in the skin, but they do not see the connection with the digestive system. And the same thing, <clears throat> if you then move on to a lung specialist or something that can help you with your asthma or bronchitis or something like this, they don't make the link. They don't ask you, hey, did, did you have any eczema and did you use any cream on that? I, you know, the, it, it, it's just like a complete gap that is there. It is as if, you, you know, the first things that you learn when you start studying anatomy, and we study the same anatomy <laughs> when we study homeopathy, it is that we understand that everything is completely connected. So it's weird. It's really weird to see highly qualified doctors that have studied for years and years and years to start separating the systems like, systems like that in complete denial of holistic healing and holistic health. And of course, you know, that is one of the other arguments that orthodox medicines feel threatened by when they're talking about, ho uh, when, they, when they feel threatened by homeopathy. And that is that we have a philosophy when we are talking about homeopathy. Homeopathy is not just supporting the very mechanical view of the body. We have, we, <laughs> we have added more layers to it. We have the mechanical understanding and knowledge about the body, but we actually have some layers on top of it. We have some added extras that 
we are completely relying on and dependent on uh, to be able to understand homeopathy uh, or to be able to understand health. There is a great uh, quote here uh, in a book written by a guy called Paul Starr, and you have to forgive me, I'm not really sure when this book is from, but you can find it, of course, in this article that I'm going to link to. But he says, because homeopathy was simultaneously philosophical and experimental, it seemed to many people to be more rather than less scientific than orthodox medicine. So because we expand our view on health, then it's being understood as being less scientific. And boy, is that what we are still up against. Yes, we have a big philosophy about our understanding of the body, uh, how things are connected, what we need to look for when we want to get real healing, when we are looking for the root cause. And it's also experimental because we are always looking for new things we are always trying things out we have lots of communication of course with our patients uh, so that we can understand the specific circumstances about our patients as good as possible so that we can find the exact medicine um, that fits this one patient so of course the the the, the other one of one other great quote um that is also here in in this great article uh, by Dana Allman is um, this quote where a very respected uh, physician says exactly this we must admit that we never fought the homeopath on matters of principles we fought him because he came into the community and got the business And that was a problem, that when you have great success with administering medicine, then orthodox medicine got really pissed off. We got ahead in 1844 by organizing and and creating and founding the American Institute of Homeopathy. So what happened? In 1846, only two years later, a rival medical group formed which then vowed to slow the development of homeopathy. This was part this was a reason to found this organization in 1846 which called itself the American Medical Association or the AMA. So the AMA was founded on trashing homeopaths. Members of the AMA had a long-standing animosity towards homeopathy and homeopaths. The feeling ran so strong, shortly after the formation of the AMA, it was decided to purge all local medical societies of physicians who were homeopaths. So this is when the big divide happens. When the American Medical Association, they simply say, if you are a homeopath, You are not a doctor, you cannot be a part of our society. And they actually went so far to say, they went extremely far, that if you were even associated with the homeopath, you could not be a member of the AMA. However, we also know that the 
elite, the so-called elite and the educated and the academics and the royalty and so on, they were still, of course, using homeopathy, even though the AMA um, decided to trash it. And and so even in in uh, uh, in Boston, uh, it was decided that the um, you could you know uh, you could you could keep tolerating um, homeopaths and homeopathy as long as new members were not accepted into the association, and that was because uh, homeopathy was used so much by the elite in Boston. So they got this little amendment in here. Uh, in, in 1871, the eight remaining physicians were expelled from the society for the heinous crime of being homeopaths. So, you know, that was how long it was tolerated. And then from there, you the best word to use for it is uh, the slaughter really, really started. Already in 1855, the AMA established a code of ethics which asserted that orthodox physicians could lose their membership in the AMA if they even consulted a homeopath or other non-regular practitioner. So other non-regular practitioners, that could also be midwives, for instance. So the AMA, they were like, it's our way or nothing. That's basically what they said. Uh, there was uh, uh, they were quite extreme. So there there, there has been cases of uh, there was here a New York doctor was expelled for purchasing milk sugar from a homeopathic pharmacy, <laughs> big crime. So he could not be a member anymore. Um, and there's uh, here Joseph K. Barnes, the surgeon of general of the United States, was denounced for aiding the, in the treatment of Secretary State William Seward. On the night he was stabbed and Lincoln was shot simply because Seward's personal physician was a homeopath. So these are all real things that actually happened. And here is another extract from the article. In a bizarre event, Dr. Christopher C. Cox was refused admittance into the Medical Society of the District of Columbia because he had served on the D.C. Board of Health, which had a member who was a homeopath. Dr. W, uh, Dr. D. W. Bliss, a conventional physician and colleague of Dr. Cox, was also expelled, not because he consulted a homeopath, but because he consulted with Dr. Cox, who had was previously expelled. Um, ironically, the Medical Society judged that Bliss and Cox had committed a heinous crime, even though it was in the treatment of Julia Colfax, the vice president of the United States under Andrew Johnson. So we can see here how powerful this American Medical Association is already at this time. Um, they had no... Um, it was like they didn't stop up and think. <laughs> it was just like this one one message one way and that is we are the only ones that should um look after disease we are the only ones that should be able to make money on disease basically i think it is what they're saying we want all of it 
The AMA and its members did anything possible to thwart the education of homeopaths. In the early 1840s and again in 1855, advocates of homeopathy convinced the Michigan legislature uh, to establish a professorship of homeopathy in the Department of Medicine at the University of Michigan. The AMA resolved to deny recognition of the university's regular medical graduates if a homeopath, um, as one of their professors, signed their diploma. And at the time, all professors signed graduates' diplomas. The homeopath brought their case to the Michigan Supreme, Supreme Court three times, but each time the court expressed uncertainty as to its power to compel the regents of the university to take action. Finally, a compromise was reached. In 1875, the Michigan legislature voted to give money to a new hospital dependent upon the appointment of two professors of homeopathy, but it was also decided that, the only, that only the president and the secretary of the university would sign the diplomas, thereby allowing their graduates to be recognized by the AMA. Despite this compromise, almost every medical journal in the country urged uh, the Michigan Medical Faculty to resign rather than participate in the training of homeopaths. The antagonism to homeopathy was not confined only to the United States. It was also widespread in Europe. A French medical student was expelled from his college for expressing interest in homeopathy. A consultation clause similar to the one in the United States was established in France, in France when J.P. Tessier, a French conventional physician, evaluated the results of homeopathy at his hospital and announced that the Paris Ac- Academy, that they were favorable, he aroused a storm of protest. No orthodox medical journal would publish these results, and when he had it published in a homeopathic journal, he was expelled from the medical society. In the 1830s, the practice of homeopathy became illegal in Austria. Despite its illegality, many people used micro, um, microdoses uh, during the cholera epidemic in 1831. And that is also quite ironic that in homeopathy, we're pretty stealth at treating epi- treating epidemics. And we have done it all the way through the history of homeopathy. I encourage anybody to just go and read the papers that exist on it. You know, don't take it for me. Don't take it for me making any claim. Take it as an uh, encouragement to go out and, and research more. Statistics show that those with cholera who tried homeopathy had a mortality rate between 2.4% and 21.1%, whereas over 50% of those treated with cholera under conventional medical care died. Okay. In addition to the attacks by conventional physicians on the homeopath's right to practice, the the right to join medical associations and the right to a medical education, conventional physicians sought to besmirch the reputations of homeopaths. Homeopaths were considered immoral, illegitimate and unmanly. The opposition to homeopathy was not based on any scientific evaluation of this healing art, but those but arose primarily because homeopathy and homeopaths were a significant competitor to conventional 
in medicine and doctors. I'm just gonna keep reading here from Dana Allman's uh, great article. So this is the chapter in this article that's called The Rise of Homeopathy. In 1890 issue, in an 1890 issue of Harper's Magazine, Mark Twain acknowledged the special value of homeopathy, noting the introduction of homeopathy forced the old school doctor to stir around and learn uh, something of a rational nature about his business. Twain also asserted that you may honestly feel grateful that homeopathy survived the attempts of allopathists so orthodox, orthodox physicians to destroy it. Despite the significant oppression from the orthodox medical profession, homeopathy survived and even thrived in the 1800s and the early 1900s. By 1900, there were 22 homeopathic medical schools, more than 100 homeopathic hospitals, over 60 orphan asylums and old people's homes, and 1,000 plus homeopathic pharmacies in the U.S. These impressive numbers alone do not provide an accurate perspective on the significant impact that homeopathy had on the American life. Homeopathy attracted support from many of the most respected members of society. Its advocates included William James, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, uh, and Many other names where I have to admit I actually do not know them, maybe because they are American. But William Cullen Bryant, the famous journalist, was president of the New York Homeopathic Society. And John D. Rockefeller referred to homeopathy as a progressive and aggressive step in medicine. The fact that he was under homeopathic care throughout the latter part of his life may be one of the reasons why he lived to be 97. So, this is the medicine for the rich and famous. Homeopathy's popularity among uh, respected classes were also evident in Europe. Besides its patronage by the British royal family dating from 1830, homeopathy could count among its supporters Charles Dickens and Yeast um, and Goethe and many other prominent people from that time. And it is, of course, still the case that a lot of people, uh, also prominent people, famous people, royalty, and so on, rich people, they use homeopathy, and they and they still do it to this day. Uh, so we gotta thank uh, Dana Allman also for writing a book where he has a, he has a, a made a book where he collected quotes from famous people and stories from famous people through history uh, up until now where they talk about the use of homeopathy and what it has done for them and what they have said about it. That's still something that happens today. It has happened throughout the history of, of homeopathy. And of course, we also have many advocates for homeopathy today. It would be great if they would be a little bit more vocal about it. But when we now understand the oppression of this medicine and the consequences that this use of medicine this, uh, the use of homeopathy, the association with homeopathy, what that has brought to many people, then you can also understand why people maybe choose to stay quiet about it. Another thing that maybe 
you know, rub the patriarchy up the wrong way, the patriarchy. I'm so, you know, I am Danish and uh, my English is not perfect. I hope you can still understand what I'm saying and that uh, that you get the essence of what it is that I want to say. And forgive me for all the mispronunciations. Okay, but here's another fact, and that is that homeopathy was also disproportionately popular among women, not only as patients, but as practitioners. Uh, and the first... Uh, medical college in the world, um, the, fir- the, the first women's medical college in the world, was the Homeopathic Boston Female Medical College, and it was founded in 1848. Uh, and shortly after uh, came the uh, New England Female Medical College, and in 1873 it merged with the uh, Uh, this was in uh, New England, and, and in 1873, this merged with the Boston University and other homeopathic college. Homeopaths also admitted women physicians into their national organization, um, so they could be invited in to the American Institute of Homeopathy. And from 1871, uh, the American Medical Association actually did not admit and allow any women into their organization until 1915. Um, the Orthodox Medical School at St. Johns Hopkins finally agreed to accept women students as late as 1890, not only out of interest in women's rights, they were uh, also offered an endowment. Uh, Uh, to to encourage this, but uh, Howard turned down the same offer. Not for women. Stay out of this. Of course, we women has always been a threat to many of the systems, <laughs> uh, the ruling systems that we we have gone through in white history, so to say. Um, I just want to add, you know. Also, there was that, you know, it was illegal for women to go to the pub and to drink be- beer. Uh, but then, of course, coffee also became fashionable at a time, and uh, you got the coffee houses, and women, they started to meet up to drink coffee, uh, and they met with each other, and they started to chat and talk and exchange ideas, and that was too much for the patriarchy again, for the patriarchy again, so uh, women were banned from going to po- coffee houses, you know, this is interesting to see that uh, the history of women is also so uh, in the history of homeopathy. But of course, uh, although I'm just going to read more from the article here, although homeopathy was particularly popular among the educated and upper classes, it also had a good reputation among the poor. Some of this support, no doubt, resulted from the free homeopathic dispensaries in many cities. So, you had homeopath and homeopathic dispensaries that were giving out uh, treatment for free and making medicine available uh, for free to many people is something that homeopathy uh, has been doing for the longest time and is still doing to this day. I just want to add in, you know, you may know uh, Bach's Rescue Remedy or the flower essences. They were created in 1930, and I think one part of that particular history around these remedies is is maybe unknown, but it is important. And it is that Dr. Bach, he made the flower remedies. Uh, he was a homeopath, of course, uh, but he made the flower remedies 
and he gave away all the instructions in how to make the flower remedies so that uh, the farmer or, or people who were poor they could make their own medicine uh, without having to pay someone to do it there's also many clinics uh, not so much in the western world uh, but in india for instance where maybe the mornings from 8 to 10 that they will be free and anybody can just show up and they will get to see a homeopath and they will also get a remedy so you know this is a core part that we have in homeopathy as well it is to educate people and to absolutely help people to use this medicine at home by themselves but of course the free uh, access uh, to medicine was also uh, a way of of uh, people really liking homeopathy because they could get the help for free and they would get better but also as Ullman uh, uh, has in this article here he says probably the most important reason that homeopathy developed such immense popularity was its success in treating various infectious epidemic diseases that raged through America and Europe during the 1800s statistics indicate that the death rates in homeopathic hospitals from these epidemics were often one half as little as one it were often one half to as little as one eighth of those in orthodox medical hospitals Cincinnati homeopaths were so successful in treating people during the 1849 cholera epidemic that homeopaths published a daily list of their patients in the newspaper giving names and addresses of those who were cured and those who died only three percent of the 1116 homeopathic patients died while between 48 to 60 percent of those under orthodox medical treatment died take that in The success of homeopaths in treating the yellow fever epidemic in 1878 that spread throughout the south was so impressive that homeopathy finally began to be noticed in the region. Death rates for those under homeopathic care were approximately one-third that they were for those using orthodox medicine. Besides offering effective treatment for infectious diseases, homeopaths provided care for a wide range of acute and chronic disease. The observation that patients under homeopathic care lived longer led some life insurance companies to offer a 10% discount to homeopathic patients. So, of course, uh, with the, this new popularity of homeopathy, there was also more people that decided to go the homeopathic route um, and what we have to remember is that the homeopaths they had to go in front of the same board uh, as the orthodox or the allopathic doctors um, and here I just think that it's also very nice to have this note uh, from, from Dana Ullman where he says it's impressive to note that a higher percentage of graduates of homeopathy homeopathic medical schools passed medical board examinations than did their orthodox medical student colleagues. Homeopaths showed impressive scholarship both in books and journals. According to a U.S. Commission on Education in 1898, three of four medical schools were the uh, three of the four medical schools with the largest libraries were homeopathic colleges. 
and the turn of the and at the turn of the century there were as many as 29 different homeopathic journals homeopathy's popularity in the united states was obvious and deep-seated and yet when reading most books on the history of american medicine we find little or no mention of all at all about it when when there is reference it is generally um, to um, disprove of homeopathic medicine. Uh, it has been said that history is written by its victors, not by the defeated. The history of American medicine is but another sorry example of this. So, who wrote these books? Well, it wasn't homeopath. Uh, and we know that the people that wrote these books, they have been very anxious to... Suppress the knowledge about homeopathy. Okay, let's move on to this quite sad chapter uh, from the same page here, which is called The Fall of Homeopathy. So let's go through it together. It is quite remarkable in itself that homeopathy survived uh, the harsh attempts to destroy it. After the turn of the century, however, the AMA became increasingly effective in suppressing homeopathy. In a, strategy, in a strategic move to make themselves look like the good guys, the AMA chose to allow graduates of homeopath homeopathic schools to join the AMA as long as they denounced homeopathy and, or at least didn't practice it. The AMA also chose to drop the consultation clause in 1901, not because they were no longer uh, against homeopathy, but because they had a new and very good way of defeating it. In 1910, the Carnegie Foundation issued the famous, infamous Flexner Report. The Flexner Report was an evaluation of American medical schools chaired by Abraham Flexner in cooperation with the leading members of the AMA. While pretending to be objective, the report actually established guidelines meant to sanction orthodox medical schools uh, and condemn uh, homeopathic ones. The report placed the highest value on those medical schools that had full-time teaching faculty and those schools that taught a pathological and physiochemical analysis of the human body. Homeopathic colleges, colleges were faulted because of their preference for employing professors who were not simply teachers or researchers, but also in clinical practice. And that's what you will find still in homeopathic schools. It is that the teachers that you're being taught by, they are also in practice. It is something that is a criteria to teach homeopathy. Although homeopathic schools included many basic science courses, they also had courses in pharmacology, which the Flexner report did not consider worthwhile. You have to wonder why. Well, we know why, because there was, it was good business to sell medicine. I want to add at this point also that everything that is in this article, uh, and you can go and read it uh, because it's in the notes to this podcast, everything is referenced. So you can go and, go and, and check all the references um, yourself. As one might easily predict, the homeopathic colleges on the whole were given poor ratings by the Flexner report. 
As a result of the report, only graduates of those schools which received high rating were allowed to take medical licensing exams. There were 22 homeopathic colleges in 1900, but only two remained in 1923. These schools were not only uh, were not the only ones hurt by the Flexner report. Of of the seven black medical schools, only two survived. The report also contributed to a 33% reduction in women being graduated from medical school. You can thank the American Medical Association for this. As a way of coping with the new guidelines and in order to pass the new licensing exams that stressed the basic sciences, homeopathic colleges decided to offer more education on pathology, chemistry, physiology and other medical sciences. Although they offered better education on these subjects, their homeopathic training suffered greatly. As a result, the graduates from these homeopathic colleges were less able to practice homeopathy well. Instead of individualizing medicines to a person's totality of symptoms, many homeopaths began prescribing medicine according to disease categories. The consequences from this type of care were predictably poor results. Many homeopaths gave up, gave up homeopathic practice and many homeopathic patients sought other types of care. There were other reasons for the sharp decline of homeopathy after the turn of the century. Orthodox medicine was no longer as barbaric as it was in the 1800s and because of this it didn't drive as many patients away. Orthodox physicians also began incorporating several of, hom of the homeopathic medicines into their practice. Although they didn't prescribe the same small doses as the homeopaths, their use of certain homeopathic medicines confused the public who were having increasingly difficulty in distinct distinguishing orthodox physicians from homeopathic physicians. Another factor in the decline of homeopathy was its poor economic viability. Good homeopathic practice required individualization of the patient, which demanded more time than most orthodox physicians gave to their patients. Still the same today. Since economics governs, uh, since economics, economics governs the way medicine is practiced more than is commonly recognized, the fact that physicians in the 20th century began could make more money practicing orthodox medicine is a significant factor that led to homeopathy's decline. This bullshit about saying that uh, homeopaths are doing this to become rich and famous... Uh, there's no hold in it. I, uh, 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 I wish, you know, it would be so awesome uh, with all the work that I put into the online materials and talking to people and trying to teach people, you know, just like all of that work, my websites, my membership sites and all of that, you know, nobody's paying me to do that. I'm not getting rich of it. I am making this podcast to try and get you interested in this topic so you can come in and you can see and you can learn for yourself about this. But am I rich from this? No, I am not. And I fail to know any homeopathic colleague that is uh, living a millionaire's lifestyle. It's just not, it's just not, um, it's just not happening. And it's ridiculous that we keep being declined on doing this in order to um, be rich. It isn't. Perhaps history could have been changed if John D. Rockefeller 
a strong advocate of homeopathy, gave the major grants he intended to homeopathic institutions. He had instructed his financial advisor, Frederick Gates, to do so. Since Gates was totally enamored with orthodox medicine, he never complied with Rockefeller's orders. Hmm, is there something with that name? <laughs> I'm sure it's a coincidence. Uh, the loss of potential uh, funding was tragic since Rockefeller gave away between 300 to 400 million in the early 1900s, most of which went to orthodox medical institutions against his will. Let's just remember that. The drug companies antagonization to homeopathy continued significantly to the collective efforts to suppress this form of medicine. Because the drug companies published medical journals, they could use them as mouthpieces against homeopathy and in support of orthodox medicine. Hmm. Even the Journal of Med American Medical Association acknowledged that the medical press is profoundly under the influence of the propriety interest. So that was the drug companies. Along with the various external factors that hindered homeopathy's growth, there were problems amongst homeopaths themselves. Disagreement within homeopathy has a long tradition, and I can vouch for that. Hahnemann demanded that his followers practice precisely the way he did. He who does not walk exactly the same line with me who diverges, if it be but the breadth, breadth of a straw to the left or to the right, is an, a traitor. As one could predict, many homeopaths did not practice as Hahnemann did. And I don't practice the way Hahnemann did either. Uh, you know, we have to remember that even when we have a strong founder, uh, things happen in society and medicine and, and things develop, not just medicine. I mean, look at Steiner as well, Rudolf Steiner and the Waldorf schools. There's also changes that has to be done there simply because time has changed. When it comes to homeopathy and practicing uh, medicine, then we also have to think about and remember all the environmental factors that are, have entered our life uh, since Hahnemann. The most famous homeopaths in the US were prim primarily Hahnemannians. However, the majority of homeopaths practicing in this country did not prescribe their medicines on the basis of the totality of symptoms, but primarily according to the chief complaint. These homeopaths prescribe medicines for specific diseases and sometimes they prescribe one medicine for a person's headache, another for the digestive disorder, another for the skin problem. Hahnemann and his followers were particularly adamant that the use of only one medicine at a time. And Hahnemann referred to those practitioners who use more than a single medicine as pseudo-homeopaths and other less kind things. So we can see here that there is also a, a um, disagreement uh, inside the homeopathic society, uh, inside you know where homeopaths where homeopaths meets, and that's also still today. And the way that I like to teach homeopathy to as many people as possible, that's also something that is frowned upon among some of my colleagues. Using detox remedies is something that is frowned upon uh, amongst my colleagues. There are so many um, uh, we don't have to we don't have to wait for a doctor to condemn what we are doing. We are very, very good at hammering down on each other and um, 
we all have to find our way in this. Uh, and I think that I have found my way in this, that I am, I just want you to start using homeopathy the same way as I started. Just learn a few simple remedies, get yourself a little kit, a little box with homeopathic remedies and just start practicing. From 1930 to 1975, there are not many horror stories of the AMA's oppression of homeopathy, primarily because it seemed that the AMA had already won the war. By 1950, all the homeopathic colleges in the US were either closed or no longer teaching homeopathy. There were only 50 to 150 practicing homeopathic physicians, and most of these practitioners were over 50 years old. And yet it's hard to suppress the truth. Homeopathy has risen again. And this time history will be rewritten. You see how this could definitely be a, a very, very great book. Um, let's just take a little part of it here. Um, homeopaths throughout the world experience varying degrees of opposition from orthodox physicians but not anywhere near the systematic and intense attacks as those uh, upon American uh, that those came those that came from American doctors. When homeopaths have been given a relatively free environment to practice, homeopathy has been able to grow and flourish, and that is what we know today. It is that homeopathy is still here. Look at everything that we had to go through. Look at the fantastic rise of homeopathy at a time where medicine was barbaric um, many people benefited from it and it became big and it became strong and then we get to this point where the american medical association and the pharmacists um, they couldn't tolerate the success of homeopathy anymore and a choice was made and we are suffering under this choice still today so when you ask yourself why is it that i don't know much about homeopathy if homeopathy is so great why is there nothing about it in the medical books why are we not being taught that this is a part of the history a part of our medical history that homeopathy has played such a huge role and continues to play such a huge role remember that in india Today, homeopathy is like a completely integrated part of the medical systems. Doctors and, and homeopaths work side by side, as they did in the beginning of homeopathy, um, using whatever therapy is the most appropriate to the patient at the time. It is said by law in India that all pharmacies must have homeopathic remedies. So homeopathy is flourishing in other places than here and if homeopathy there have been many weird crazy fun interesting different practices of medicine that has come and gone through the time of history but homeopathy is not going anywhere it is still here i'm thinking about the future of homeopathy as being dependent on as many people as possible learning how to use it at home and you know what that is why i am doing what i am doing maybe some of my colleagues thinks that i am 
giving too many remedies into the hands of of lay people that uh, just are experimenting by themselves but i'm thinking you know what this may be what we need to make homeopathy survive what we are going through right now because never has orthodox medicine been more vigorous and angry and dominating than they are now and never has the discrediting of homeopathy and other natural modalities including even the use of vitamins it has never been as aggressive as it is right now we can't wait for the american medical association or any other medical associations to turn around and say hey do you know what now is the time to include homeopathy it is not going to happen ever it's not going to happen don't sit back and wait for it Don't wait for an authority to tell you homeopathy is good. You have to go out and educate yourself. You have to learn about it. You have to try it before you can know what homeopathy can do for you. And I find it so frustrating when I see people advertising on Facebook or other social media places where they say, please, can somebody recommend me a doctor that accepts my choices? And I just have to say, you are not looking for a doctor. You are looking for a homeopath. Because you're looking for somebody that understands the mechanics of the body, how things are put together, that knows about disease. But you also want to add this thing about treating the root cause of your symptoms. I think a lot of people understand that it's not satisfactory to just simply suppress symptoms. And in particular, not when it comes to our children. And of course, now we have reached this vicious, vicious time in medical history. The most disgusting, gross thing that has ever happened in medical history, supported by the American Medical Association, where we are injecting experimental drugs, where it has not been disclosed what in the, what's in them to as many people as possible. And there's coercion and bullying and threats are being used to get these substances into sh- to, to people's bodies. And at the same time, maybe you can go out and you can say, why don't you try a little bit of vitamin D to support yourself from, <laughs> from a virus? Maybe that's tolerated, but that's about it. When it comes to our very sophisticated and beautiful medical science that we have that's called homeopathy where we understand the body we understand disease and we understand the other layers too mental and emotional where we have a willingness to try things out just to see what benefits the patient and not just what benefits the system thank you for listening to this presentation uh, that is completely based on uh, Dana Allman's article from his book um, A Condensed History of Homeopathy. I hope it gives you a little bit more insight into why it is that we don't see more about homeopathy, why we are not using homeopathy more. Understand that homeopathy was simply too successful to be tolerated by orthodox doctors. It's time for you to go out and take actions to benefit your own health. Uh, your own health. Do not rely 
on orthodox medicine. Do not just rely on allopathic medicine. Broaden the horizon. Go out and indulge in all the beautiful other modalities that exist. And I hope that you'll find your way to homeopathy. And I hope that you'll find your way into some of the products that I offer on my website that teaches you how to use it. Thank you for listening. And I hope to find you here again soon.